It was after World War II. A very handsome private and his general were getting on a civilian passenger train. Now, the only two seats left on the train were in a private compartment directly across from a beautiful young 21-year-old gal and her ancient and semi-homely grandmother. So as these, these, they sat in, they sat next to them, you know, face to face, very tight quarters, and they made small talk for a while and began to, to share and uh, flirted a little bit. And then the train entered into a very dark tunnel. And it, the lights didn't come on in the train. It was so dark you could, uh, couldn't see your hand in front of your face. And so you heard a kiss. And then you heard a slap. And it was quiet. And then as the train came out of the tunnel, there was the general rubbing his very red, sore face. And he was thinking, I don't blame the private for kissing that pretty girl, but why did she think it was me? And the, the girl was very befuddled, and she was, you can tell, obviously, she was bothered. And she was thinking, I can't believe it. I'm sitting right here. Why would the private kiss my grandmother, for crying out loud? And the, the grandmother was thinking, I, I can't believe the day in which we live. I, I, I mean, the, the young man tried to kiss my... Well, she gave him what for, didn't she? And the private was sitting there just smiling, thinking this is such a beautiful world we live in. When a private can kiss the back of his hand and then slap his general in the face, no fear of court-martial, what a beautiful day we live in. <laughs> now you know that, that, that those, those, those misunderstood three... Uh, they probably would have bet everything they had that they understood the situation. Don't you think? They knew what happened here. They could figure it all out. They made all the sense. They bet everything on it. The private was hoping that at least the, the general would, would bet everything on, on a misunderstanding. But they thought that they knew. I don't know if this ever happened to you in life. Maybe not that specifically. But you walk into a situation and you're sure you understand what's going on. Maybe you, you, you look at some of the, the, what's happening and you add two and two together and you are sure you've got it figured out only to find out you're wrong. And some things in, in life are uh, just a little bit embarrassing if we get them wrong, right? No big deal. But some things are a little bit more significant. I don't know if you saw the news this past week. There are a couple of gals. I think they were from Pennsylvania. They were hiking up in Maine. And uh, when they were hiking, it began to rain and fog rolled in and they got disoriented, got lost. Uh, an off-duty, I think it was an off-duty fireman, found them, uh, gave them a ride on their uh, on his four-wheeler to a home, and they called the authorities, and the police took them to where their car was parked. They got in their car, and fog was still down. It was still raining intermittently, and they pulled out of the parking lot, but they turned the wrong way. Do you see this? And they, they drove down the end of the this street off of the boat ramp into the water. Their van traveled about 50 feet before it sank and killed them both. Now, if you, there are some things that, you know what, there's not a lot of margin if you get them wrong. We have to get them right. The identity of Jesus is such a thing. And my guess is most Americans have heard something about Jesus, and, and they've got this picture, many of us perhaps, We've taken a little bit from Sunday school, and then there was that thing that that, that biology teacher in freshman year told us, and then there was that PBS thing, and there was that, that thing my friend said, and we put all this stuff together, and we got like a Frankenstein Jesus in our mind. And it's, 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 it's warped. There's a lot of truth there, but there's some warped, twisted pieces. There's some things that just don't go together. It's, maybe it's too small. And the identity of Jesus is a pretty important thing, isn't it? In, in John 8, he said this. He said, unless you believe that I am he, 
you will surely die in your sins. He says, don't get this wrong. And this is this. I love this verse because he doesn't say, unless you're a church member, you're going to die in your sins. Or unless you really do well in your life, you're going to die. And you've never lied. You're going to Unless you believe that I am he. Jesus hangs it all on understanding his identity. He wants us to know his identity. We've got no excuse other than our human limitations because in the book of John, seven different times, Jesus says, I am, and then he throws a predicate. And he gives us a little different uh, angle on who he is. He shows another facet of who he is and how that interacts with our lives. And so what we're doing in this series is we're looking at the seven I am's. We're spending one week on each of them. And at the end of these seven weeks, the goal, one of the goals is for us to be able, everybody who's here, to be able to recount exactly where the I am's are and what they mean to uh, us. And so we're employing a, a memory technique to help us get there. And so if you'll close your eyes right now, that would be great. Just close your eyes. Don't go to sleep. I'm going to call you back awake in a moment. But everyone, please close your eyes. Go ahead and close them because I need you to picture something. You need to picture six giant loaves of bread. Right? I mean, these are huge loaves of bread. You've got three on the bottom. These are like in a pyramid. Then two in the middle and one on the top. Huge loaves of bread. You see them three on the bottom, two in the middle, one on the top. But this isn't normal bread. This is 35-day-old bread. This stuff is stale as who knows what. And so stamped on the end of each loaf of bread is a big 35. You got stamped on the bottom three. 35, 35, 35. The two in the middle, 35, 35. The one at the top, 35. John 6, 35, Jesus said, I am the bread of life, right? Keep your eyes closed because coming out of that top loaf of bread is a light pole. Now that, this light pole, it's got, at the top, it looks like there's a stop sign attached to it, okay? But the stop sign's been spray painted gray, so you don't see the stop thing. But, but here's the, the wild thing about the stop sign. At each corner of the stop sign, there's a light bulb screwed in. So if you think about the corners of your stop sign, you can see them. You got two at the top, two on the right, two on the bottom, two on the left. You see, see those light bulbs on the top of that light sign, that stop sign? You got two at the top, two on the right, two on the bottom, two at the left. And these aren't just normal light bulbs. These are 12 waters, all right? 12 Now, it doesn't sound like lots of light, but all together and then off that, that reflective stop sign thing, it really kind of glows. So how many light bulbs are we dealing with? Hey, oh, six. No, 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 that's 635. Wrong. It's eight. And what's the wattage on them? John eight twelve. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Open your eyes. Turn with me. John chapter 8, verse 12. John 8, 12. You can be rehearsing that on your way home, by the way. That's something to test your guys with around dinner time and everything else. 7 I am, John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. And in John chapter 8, verse 12, by the way, I know we say this every once in a while, but how do you know that I haven't messed with the words on the screen? And I'm just faking it, and I'm teaching you heresy. You don't, if you don't have your own Bible to open up and look, there's one in the pew rack in front of you. I would ch- grab it and check it, make sure I'm doing okay. John chapter 8, verse 12, it says, when Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, if you've grown up in the church, you've heard this how many? A gazillion times? It's like, oh, yeah, okay, oh, yeah. All right, what else is going on? Um, this is actually, though, a very, very, very staggering claim. If you understand it in the context of what Jesus is saying, it makes you almost go back and go, I, I don't know. And it forces you to have to pass judgment 
on this claim. We'll see that in a second. But to understand that, you've got to understand the context a little bit. John chapter 7, 8, 9, the Feast of the Tabernacles. All of those chapters, all of them going on is the Feast of the Tabernacles. Now John seven thirty seven lets us know that this was the last day of the feast. So when Jesus says this, it's the very last day of the feast. That will come into play in a moment. Also, chapter 8, verse 20 lets us know that when Jesus says this, he's by the treasury in the temple. That will come into play in a moment as well. Very, very important. Feast of Tabernacles, though. What the Feast of Tabernacles was is it was an eight-day feast uh, in the fall. Our, our calendar, sometime between mid-September and mid-October, it serves two purposes. First purpose is kind of, is kind of like Thanksgiving for us. You know, yay, thank you for all the wonderful things you've given us. So there's that element going on. But that's secondary because the primary element of the Feast of the Tabernacles is it's commemorating, celebrating God's taking care of his people 1,450 years ago when they were walking through the wilderness. Now, during the, the Feast of, of Tabernacles, and they were, all the feasts were held in Jerusalem. That's, they had to be by the temple, so they were all there. But during the, the Feast of Tabernacles, attendance population in Jerusalem would swell. And it was an exciting time because what would happen is the people who, whose homes were there in Jerusalem, what they would do is they would go get sticks and tree limbs and they would build these little lean-tos, teepees, on the roof of their house. Now, our houses are like this. That wouldn't work. But their houses were like this, so it would be fine. So they built these little forts on top of their roof. And then throughout the feast, they would sleep out in the little fort. Now, you can imagine if you were a kid. This is kind of cool. This is better than getting the Christmas tree out of the attic and setting it up. We'd go find branches and we'd build our own fort and then we get to sleep outside in this thing for a full week. This would be kind of cool. And the, the Mishnah tells us that there was parades. There was reenactments of this Joshua fight in the Battle of Jericho thing. There was dancing in the streets led by, according to the Mishnah, some of the most pious men in Jerusalem. It was a very happy, celebrative time is they thought about God's taking care of his people, Jewish people themselves, years and years ago. Now, to understand two ceremonies that happened would really set this up a little bit. First one, let me just mention it. There's a ceremony of water. And every morning of the feast, the priest took uh, water from the Pool of Shalom and they brought it up to the, the uh, altar in the temple area and they poured it out. And it was like a parade when they did this. And it was just remembering, remember when they were in the desert and they didn't have any water and God miraculously brought water. So it was that remembering God's provision. So it was celebrative. But then every night what they did, and this is, comes into play here, every night they, they, they drug out these four candelabras. Now these were not, these things were massive. You would need ladders to get to the top, the Mishnah says. And each candelabra had four bowls, four lamps on the top. And each lamp could hold 15 gallons of fuel, of oil. And the, the, the wicks were made out of old priest's garments. And so you had four of these things. So it's 16 lamps. And when they lit this up, you can just imagine. In a dark area, before electricity, this, it, it's mentioned that, that besides everyone in Jerusalem can see this, they said because Jerusalem was on the hill, everyone in the outside uh, peripheral area could see the glow. And of course, what they're remembering was when they were in the, the desert, uh, God was leading them by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And they were it was commemorating and, and celebrating that God's leading them through that, that light, that, that fire. And understanding just a little bit about that is going to add in as well. 
Israel just came out of, of Egypt, right? They're actually they're just getting ready to come out. The ten plagues and all that, they're just getting ready to come out. And then in Exodus chapter 13, it says this, beginning in verse 17. Um, it says, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. For God said, if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the desert road toward the Red Sea. Now we've got a, a, a mappy deal here. And they are, see if I can get this right. There we go. They are hanging out here. This is Goshen, all the, the, the Delta area. Now they need to go to Canaan. See it? Right there. Now, they know where they're supposed to go because God made the promises to Abraham because Isaac hung out there because Jacob, that's where their ancestors lived before they came down to Egypt. So they know that they need to go from there to there. And they know there's a straight line going that way. It's a very famous route. It was the uh, way of the sea. It was the way of the Philistines. Now, most of these guys, of course, they have no G GPS units, but they're not stupid. They understand through the stars how to navigate. And so they know which way they need to go. And you would think, God needs to get his people from there to, if I can get this right, to there. It makes sense. Just go down that road. But God knows something they don't know. God says, ah, we better not go that route. See, that's also the main invasion route. Syrians, Babylonians, Philistines, whenever, whenever you're going to fight with Egypt... Let me see if I can get this going. Uh, this is all desert, and so you can't come through there. Alexander the Great tried to do that at one point, lost a lot of people. You can't do that. You have, there's an there's a, there's a invasion road right through there. And in Egypt, has set lots of battlements along that road, and God knows that his people, you know what, if they were going to have a pyramid building contest, all right, hey, take them on. They could win. But if they're going to have battles and wars, and they, the people up and down that road are going to be tough folk, and he knows when his people who are not experienced in warfare, go out and they see this stuff and they get challenged. God says the discouragement is nothing they're going to be able to just walk through. It will kill them. They will go back to Egypt. He knows the battles that would happen to them there. He knows the dangers. Now, this is the way God leads us, right? We think, God, I know where I need to go. Makes sense. It does. I, I can get there. Straight line. Let's go. But God starts to lead us into the desert. We go, what are you doing? You're making a mistake. But God knows. If I lead you the path you want to go, there's stuff down that road that you're not aware of that I am. And it will hurt you. You're not ready for that. And so God leads them into the desert. Uh, some have said, just so you know, this is a side point thing, crossing the Red Sea, one of two places. Either A, they cross it right there, like this map shows, and they hang out down here in the Sinai Peninsula. Or there's another theory that says they come down here and they cross here and they hang out over here. Land of Midian, there's some confusion which side it's on. It's both. I don't know. All you need to know. All I know. Who really knows? I know this. God did not lead them by the way that was quickest, the way that was most comfortable, the way that was most convenient, the way that was, in our mind, in their minds, the most profitable, easy way. He led them into the desert. Because they needed to learn. They needed to get to a place where their resources would run out. And they had to say, Oh God, our resources ran out. And he would say, That's right. You need to depend on me. Here's manna. Here's water. There were lots of tests and things and lessons that they were gonna they, they needed before they got to Canaan. Is it possible? With the way he leads us, we know how it's supposed to go. And we, we, we spend the whole time wandering around the de desert, ticked off and upset, and sure God blew it and missing what he's trying to teach us the whole time. He's got us there saying, I'm leading you aright. Trust me, if you went the way you thought you were going, it wouldn't happen. It doesn't 
doesn't the Christian life just come down to this? Do we trust God or not? It, it all comes down to that. So he led them. Well, on verse 20 of chapter 13 of Exodus, it says that after leaving Succoth, they encamped at Etham on the edge of the desert. This was the last town before they got, went into no man's land, the desert. And by day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way. And by night, in a pillar of fire to give them light so that they could travel by day or night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. I I love this. Because God knows that they're going to hit some lean times. That they're going to run into some danger. That they're going to begin questioning him. And it's very important that his people realize that God led us here. That God hasn't left us. That God is still present with us. And so you have this opaquish, swirling mass they call the cloud by day. At night, the thing starts to glow. Uh, it's the presence of God. And God is, God is leading them. If you look over in chapter 14, because the cloud didn't just lead. It did, it did more than that. Uh, Pharaoh realizes that his cheap labor just left town. Man, what is he going to do now? So he has he repents of his repentance and he gets his chariots going and he goes to chase the the, the Israelites. You know the story and uh, he he traps these guys and they're in trouble. They they don't know which way they're going to go at this point. And then in verse nineteen of chapter fourteen it says, "Then the angel of God, who had been traveling in front of Israel's army, withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them." coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Look at this, it's interesting. Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to one side and light to the other side. So neither went near the other all night long. I, I, I love this because God led them in the, this way, didn't he? He led them in the desert. And we think sometimes if God leads me, there's not going to be any real dangers. I mean, there'll be some little things to try to scare us, but we are bigger than that. We know there's not really any real dangers. No, these are real dangers. These are real issues. And God, where he leads, he protects. And so he comes down right between his people and Egypt. And I love this because on one side of this cloud thing, it's a nightlight. The people can see, they can have... And on the other side, it's such deep darkness that the Egyptians are saying, I'm not going near that thing. I'm not getting it. No way, we're not coming near that that thing. God protects where he leads. Now, I can't tell you exactly. I know what that always looks like. The, church, the history of the church is filled with martyrs. But he protects them. He protects their faith in such a way. He protects them spiritually in such a way. And now, let me follow one more thing with this cloud issue. Because this is a great theology, actually. The theology of the cloud in Scripture. In Exodus 40, verse 34, it says, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting. That's the tabernacle, right? And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled upon it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. In all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But the cloud did not lift. They did not set out until the day it lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day, and fire was in the cloud by night in the sight of all the house of Israel during their travels. Now, when the, the temple would be built, which is like a permanent tabernacle, Scripture says the cloud came upon the temple and settled there. It was the presence of God. It was the glory of God. It was, it was there. Now, this is the picture of what's going on here in John 8. This is what they're commemorating. 
But the last day of the feast was an interesting day because they didn't light the candelabra on the last day of the feast. They're taking, tearing stuff down. They're getting ready to go home. And so you can imagine the people, uh, are, the lights are all extinguished and they're thinking, you know what? That was a cool time back when God led our people, when God was around. It's not, it's not, not, not there anymore. It's no, no light. They're not ignorant of the Old Testament. Maybe they're remembering in Ezekiel where the, the cloud, the glory of God, because his people are no longer following him, the picture in Ezekiel is the cloud lifts from the temple and leaves pronounced Ichabod. The glory has departed. The people are conscious. You know, there was a day when God was here, but he's gone. And maybe at Jesus' time in John 8, they're conscious of the fact that the holy, holiest place, the Ark of the Covenant's not in there anymore. He got lost somewhere. Maybe Nebuchadnezzar, when he raised the, the temple in 586, he took it. We haven't seen it since. So we still had the holy place, holy, holy of holies, but it's just kind of empty. The glory of God is gone. The light of God is gone. And maybe they're, they're, they're thinking, yeah, we've got to go back to work tomorrow. This was a great holiday. This was a fun celebration. But tomorrow reality hits. Light is gone. And 820 lets us know that Jesus stands up in the treasury. Now, you know where they lit the candelabras? In the treasury, the, the court of women. Uh, the, the court of women, just women didn't hang out there. Just so you know, you had a court of Gentiles where everybody could pass through. Then you had a court of women where all Jewish people, men and women, could be. Then you had the court of men where just the the men would go. So if you wanted to hit all the Jewish people, you came to the court of women where they had the offering plates, uh, and it was just an incredibly busy place. The candles are extinguished. You get the picture. Jesus perhaps stands up amidst these extinguished candles, and he says, Excuse me. Excuse me. Have attention. Everybody, attention. I am the light of the world. Don't be sad. It's not, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And think about what the Pharisees are thinking at this point. Uh, um, um, excuse me? You are, are the light of the world. No, no, you are. So they say in verse 13 of John chapter 8, they challenge him a little bit. They said, here you are, appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. They're saying, please, you're lying to us. Anybody can stand up and say, I'm Genghis Khan, I'm Caesar, I'm the light of the world. Yeah, prove that you are. I was in uh, uh, Chicago preaching downtown on the corner of uh, Chicago and Michigan Avenue. Very, very busy, high-end retail place. If you go Christmas shopping in Chicago, this is where you'll be. Hancock thing and Nike store. And all, all the, it's just a really, really intense, fun. It's a fun, busy, busy place. I was preaching down there with our team. And I remember I got done and a man came up to me in uh, white coveralls. So I remember this. He's got a very bushy beard, glazed over eyes. And he said, <clears throat> I am the Holy Spirit. I said, really? Really? Now you can understand my hesitation in believing this gentleman. Really? Uh, well, this is where the, the, the Pharisees are. Now, what we don't want to do, though, is we don't want to equate those scenarios too closely because my Holy Spirit friend in over, overalls, um, he very quickly demonstrated that he was as high as a kite, man. He, didn't, he couldn't control himself physically. He was hallucinating in front of us. He was seeing all kinds of wild stuff. Um, Jesus, on the other hand, was not as high as a kite. He was not drunk. He did not demonstrate any, any manifestations of psychosis. As a matter of fact, right before this, 
he takes on the, the Harvard professors of the day in Judaism. They gang up. They take all of their wisdom and skill and understanding and they try to tackle Jesus and clobber him in a theological sparring match. And when they leave, they leave with their tails between their legs, not because Jesus sought to humiliate them. He cared for them, but he needed to put them in their place. In just a moment, he's going to get into another big debate with the Pharisees. And he's going to demonstrate an incredible understanding of reality that surpasses the Pharisees them, themselves. So Jesus was not reflecting any kind of psychosis in what he was, what he was saying here. Very significant. Now, maybe we don't understand when we first read this what he was really saying, but the Pharisee leaders do. You know, there are people who will say Jesus really never claimed deity. Well, they just don't, they're not familiar with the text. If you look over in John chapter 8 still, verse 55, we'll start in 55. Jesus is again talking to the Pharisees there in this whole discussion throughout the whole chapter. And he says, though you do not know, know him, he's talking about the Father, I do know him. If I said I did not, I would be a liar like you, but I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. And they said, well, you're not yet 50 years old, the Jews said to him. And you have seen Abraham? I and mean, bottom line is, Abraham was at least 2,000 years ago. And here you are today. You're not even 50. How in the world did you see Abraham? And then Jesus says this. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered. Before Abraham was born, I am. Now, the Jewish people, especially these Pharisee guys, they knew what he was saying. Exodus 3.14. Remember Exodus. Moses is talking to the burning bush. And God out of the burning bush, go to Egypt, get my people, you know, all that. And so Moses says, now listen, wait a minute, God, I'm going to get to all these people and say, a bush told me, I mean, come on, help me out a little bit. What's your name? And look what God says. God says to Moses, I am who I am. That is what you're to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. This is God's covenant name. This is God's personal name. I am. In, in Hebrew, this is uh, called the Tetragrammaton, incredibly holy. Matter of fact, Jewish people won't even say this word, Yahweh. They won't say it because they're afraid that they'll be breaking the commandment to taking God's name in vain. So they'll pronounce it Jehovah, but they, they won't say Yahweh. So I'm reading in Hebrew class, and when you come to Yahweh, if you say Yahweh instead of Jehovah, you will be humiliated, kicked out of class. I've been there before. Because you don't say that name. You don't say the name. Jesus here not only says the name, he says, I'm it. You can imagine the people. And that's why they, what happens next. At this, they picked up stones to stone him. This was blasphemy. This was blasphemy in the top rank. You can't get worse than this. He's claiming God. So they sought to kill him, but he slipped away from the temple grounds. Throughout this chapter, we wish we could get into it more, but they're asking, give us more witnesses. Give us some proof that you're the I am. The one testimony in our law you need two, two, two witnesses before something is established. We just got your, your word. It's just one thing. Well, there's several. And Jesus will give several throughout his tenure on earth. One he's going to say is my miracles. I mean, there's, he doesn't just call them miracles. If you'll notice, sometimes they're called signs. When he calls them signs, it, it goes back. There's some Old Testament fulfillment going on that these Jews should have known. This, this is demonstrated of the Messiah. That's right. 
So Jesus says, the, the miracles bear testimony of me. In John 10, he says, for which of these do you stone me? Because they're after him again. He then will say that the Old Testament bears witness of me. You know that there are 60 different major prophecies for the Messiah. 60 major. Jesus was fulfilling all of them. And, and they knew this. Everyone was looking for the Messiah. And so he went to them saying, just what of the, fulfilled, what of the prophecies don't I fulfill? Just tell me. Jesus is from Abraham, and he's from the, the tribe of Judah, and he's from the, the family of David. And, and, and Jesus was going to heal the lame, and he was going to heal the blind. And Jesus would be, be um, sold for 30 pieces of silver, and crucified, and buried in a rich man's tomb, and rise from the dead. Jesus will say, just p- pick a prophecy. Where am I failing? Where am I failing? And then in chapter 8 here, he makes a big deal about my father bears witness of me. Remember the baptism of Jesus. He's being baptized and in earshot of everybody around, a voice comes out of heaven. And what's it say? This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And Jesus is saying, listen, I've got God the father talking from heaven. I've got the miracles. I mean, who can raise dead people other than God? I've, I've got your word, your scripture tells about me. What else do you want? And I found that most people who choose to not believe in Christ, it's really not, they use a rational, a rationality issue, but that's a smokescreen. That's not the real reason. The real reason is a, is a heart issue. I had a buddy one time, he was a philosophy major at U of I. Long story short, lots of debate talking. He said, Harris, I'll tell you the real reason why I don't, don't trust Christ, or I won't believe in Christ. It's because I don't want to. Because if I do, then I'm going to have to change some stuff, and I don't want to change some stuff. I thought, oh, if you would have just told me this days early, you would have saved us both a lot of time. Um, but the reason why folk, they might think that it's rational. It's a spiritual, it's a spiritual issue. It's a spiritual issue. And that's why in John 8, when Jesus says, I'm the light of the world, it doesn't, doesn't stop there. He doesn't just make a claim. He has a call for you and for me. Anytime Jesus makes a claim, it's not just enough for us to say, oh, that's kind of cool, and walk away. No, no, we have to act on it. He makes a call. He says, but he who follows me. Now, the word, interesting word for follows. Uh, Greek uses um, different verb tenses like English does. Uh, For example, uh, one of the Greek tenses is the aorist tense. And if I was, wanted to say, I closed the door, I would use the aorist tense. I closed the door, and that would mean I closed the door with the result that it's still closed. I got up there and closed that door. Nobody's opening that baby again. It was a one-time event, past history. It's done. But if you use the present tense, you would say, I am continually closing the door. Which may be the wind, maybe the kids. For whatever reason, I got a kid up, keep up, getting up, closing the door. It's just a regular thing for me. It was never a one-time done thing. It's a continual thing for me. Jesus uses the present tense here. I think this is huge because he's he's not just talking to the religious leaders that they need to know that he's the light of the world which they do need to know that but he's also talking to his followers who are there and he says if you understand who I am then you will continually follow me following is not an issue of I did it once I said that prayer when I was four years old I remember kind of parts of it and I don't know so much but I remember the blanket and I remember that's fine wonderful wonderful But following is much, much more than that. Jesus says, if you understand who I am, you will need to continually follow. And we know that following is going to be based on two things. First of all, there's trust. Can you imagine the guys leaving Egypt? They see the road that leads directly to Canaan, and God's dragging them out in the desert. Somewhere they had to stop and say, okay, he just did those miracles and got us out of Egypt. 
And there was the, 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 all the, the, the frogs and lice and darkness things. And so he knows what he's doing. And he's good and he's faithful. He's cared for us up to this point. Even though it looks like we're going the wrong way, he knows what he's doing. I trust him. But it doesn't just stop there, right? And then there's the obedience factor. Then you start walking that way. And the way this might look for us might be a believer, and that's a wonderful thing. But we say, you know what, maybe we're a single person, and maybe you're looking for your life, a spouse. Not that every single person wants a spouse, but let's just say you do, and, and you know what God's Word says, not to be unequally yoked together. You know that. And you know you should be with somebody who cares for God. But there's people knocking on your door who aren't there, and you're getting up in years or something. You're going, Lord, you know, I really want a spouse, but this is, this, you're leading me in the desert here. Someone who will follow, according to John eight twelve, says, I trust you. I trust you. And I don't know where this path is going to lead. But wherever it leads, I want you to know I am following that light regardless of where you lead me. I'm following you. It works if we got your, your spouse and your spouse, for one, one reason or the other, has emotionally separated from you. They're just not there. They don't care for you. They've told you such. Whatever You've tried to love on them and they reject it. And, and you are just ready to walk. You are. But this says, you know what, Lord? I know what you've said and I trust you. It looks like you're leading me in the desert on this one. And I don't know where it's going to end. But wherever you lead, I want you to know I'm going with you. I'm not going to... Maybe you're hanging with the guys. And the guys' students are starting to do some stuff they shouldn't do. Nothing horrific. They're not going to end up in jail with this. But you know, it's going to compromise who you are as a follower of Christ. And so you say, God, I don't want to be mocked. I don't want to lose my friends but I'm going to follow you. And if you lead me in a path away from them, so be it. I'm not going to lose you. I'm following you. Maybe it's tax time. And you're pulling your hair out because you know that there's something you're missing. There's got to be something you're missing. You just know there is and the government gets too much money anyway and you don't like the way they spend it. And if you just move that little dot over, it would make such a big difference. And you would tithe on that. God, it's a good thing. But you stop and you say, I trust you. I trust you. You're going to take care of me. You're going to, you're going to take care of me. You lead me through the desert. All right, I'm going to follow you. What is that deal for you? Uh, Jim Dennison is a Texas pastor, but he said that uh, uh, when he was in college, he went on a mission trip to East Malaysia. And while he was, was there, he worked in a little church and uh, one of the last nights he was there, a teenage girl came, came forward and she said, you know, profess Christ, she was going to be baptized. And so she was baptized and it was, yay, it's a wonderful thing. And then he noticed that there were some old suitcases along the side of the, the, the church wall and he asked the pastor about it. He said, what are the suitcases here for? And the pastor said, oh yeah, uh, you see that girl who was just baptized? Well, her dad told her that if you profess Christ and you're baptized, don't come home. So... She packed up. She starts a new life tonight in many ways. Following Christ may sometimes go through a desert place. It may. The issue is, do you trust him? Because if you, if you listen to the claim of Christ, he's the bread of life, you, you, you hearken to the call, then you need to know that the consequences will be for you. And the consequences, Jesus said, if you trust me and if you continuously follow me, you know what? You won't walk in darkness. You'll have the light of life. 
I picture it like walking down a long, darkened hallway. And as you're walking through, the first set of lights come on. And it's still dark down there, but as you continue to obey, the lights continue to come on. And if you continue to obey today, you know what? He will show you. He, he, he will, he's promised. He will, it might not be right now, it might not be tomorrow, but he promises to turn the lights on and you will understand and you will trust and your understanding of him will grow and it will be strengthened and your effectiveness on this earth will grow proportionally as well. So let me ask you, your understanding of who Jesus is. Is he the light of the world for you? Again, it's not enough to just have it out there. You've got to do something with it. It's a choice you've got to make. Choose to follow if you do, there'll be the consequences, positive. You won't walk in darkness. He'll let you know the light of life. 